The book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials has appointed, had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Father, we thank you for this amazing book. And I pray that you will bring us to the place where, like Daniel, we have wisdom and understanding and discernment and knowledge in the days in which we live, not unlike the days of Daniel. Father, I pray as we begin this this new chapter in our history as a fellowship, this new chapter in Your Word, that You would open our eyes to new things, 
things new to us, but things obviously, Lord, old to you, things ancient to you, eternal truths, eternal mysteries revealed. We pray for the unsealing, Lord, of this book that we might understand and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel was a teenager when his life changed forever. And I would say to the younger people among us, don't for a second think your life doesn't really start until you're an adult. Or that your life doesn't count until you're grown up. Don't think that you won't have to stand up for your faith until you've achieved maturity in years and and in stature. Daniel learned very quickly. He was somewhere between 15 and 19 years old as our story begins. When he was taken captive into Babylon. When the king of Babylon sent his armies, besieged Judah for the first time. You Bible students know it was three times. Three different times that Babylon besieged the kingdom. The third time was in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was finally and utterly destroyed. But the first time was 605 B.C. And this is when Daniel was taken into captivity along with his friends. 605 B.C., between 15 and 19 years old. And immediately, this young man and his friends would have to make a stand for their faith. They would have to decide how they were going to live. They're now exiles in Babylon. Are they going to live by fear, or are they going to live by faith? Now, I have been looking forward to getting back to Daniel. Some of you know this. I've been looking forward to this for about 12 years. (laughs) That was the last time I taught through this book. It was prior to the beginning of this fellowship, and I've been all the way through our teachings looking forward to getting back to Daniel. This is the book that got me hooked. This is the one, and I thought I was uh, playing it safe. I had people in a Bible study, a Sunday evening Bible study, I was leading over in Anacortes saying, teach us the book of Revelation. And I'm like, no way I'm going there. Because like so many pastors, I thought the book of Revelation is just too hard to understand. It's not. And so I thought, well, let's do something like Daniel, I had no idea. No idea. I knew about the lion's den, right? I knew about the fiery furnace. I knew some of the stories. And so I thought, that'll be a good book. I hear there's some prophecy in there somewhere, but it's mostly just some great stories. And we got into Daniel. And after that, we did the book of Revelation. (laughs) And I'll explain to you why. But Daniel opened my eyes to the times in which we live. This book, the Lord used the book of Daniel to ignite my love of biblical prophecy, unlike any other study I'd ever done. And in igniting my love of biblical prophecy, the Lord reignited my love for Jesus. Now it's true, the book of Daniel holds more fulfilled prophecies than any other book in the entire Bible. More fulfilled prophecies. It's been called the key to unlocking all biblical revelation, culminating in the book of Revelation. And I'll say to you, if you don't get the book of Daniel, you're going to have trouble getting the book of Revelation because Daniel unlocks Revelation. And Revelation explains Daniel. They are two books that go together. Kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. Two great tastes that go great together. To get the book of Revelation, you've got to get this one. So a few things to note, just by way of introduction this morning, the book of Daniel is prophetic. This is a prophetic book. And I can say to you with absolute assurance, this book in our times has been unsealed. This book of prophecy has been unsealed. What do you mean, Rick? Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Daniel was told by the Lord, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. 
Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. And that's a significant verse in Bible prophecy. Seal this book up. This book is not to be understood, Daniel, nor would it be understood until the end times. Until the times when people could open it, read it, and look back and see its fulfillment and begin to understand its clarity, its explanation. You see, until the book of Revelation came around, until the revelation of Jesus came, there were aspects of Daniel that just didn't make sense. But with the revelation of Jesus came the unlocking of Daniel. And I would say even more so, we know that this is a prophecy for our times, unlocked in our times, because of two things that he says in Daniel 12.4. He says, many will go back and forth. The indication there is world travel. Many will go back and forth. In Daniel's day, that just wasn't the case. Kings and nobles, yeah, they would go back and forth. They, they might be able to travel. And occasionally, the average person might go from one nation across the border into the next... But to travel the world globally like we do today was unheard of. And yet today, it's a very normal thing. Many will go back and forth. And knowledge will increase. And at no point in the history of man has knowledge increased to the point it has today. At least our access to knowledge. The information superhighway. The internet. It's unbelievable. I've said many times, I'm able to preach things now, at my age, that men like Spurgeon or Tozer, before me, had to spend years of intense study to understand, to bring to bear. I feel like I stand on the shoulders of giants of Bible study to teach the Word that I'm able to teach today, and it's because of that increase of knowledge, which, that's the blessing of the Internet. There are a lot of, a lot of bad things in the Internet as well, you know. But the blessing is that the knowledge increases, and we can, as brothers and sisters in Christ, use that for the spread of the Gospel. So thank the Lord for the internet as a highway for traveling the Word of God. Now, we know uh, how precisely many of Daniel's prophecies played out on the world stage. Some things to know that Daniel lived and wrote in the 6th century B.C., So between about 605 and about 538 B.C., somewhere in there, was the time of the writing of the book of Daniel. But he detailed events that would not take place until 400 years later, at least beginning to take place then, especially in the 2nd century. In fact, Daniel's prophetic word in the 6th century about what took place in the 2nd century roughly 175 to 164 B.C., is so specific, it freaks some Bible scholars out. Especially those who don't like to buy into prophecy. That's why there are those who deny Daniel, or they dismiss Daniel, or they'll denigrate Daniel, saying it had to have been written after the fact. You know, perhaps it was written in the 2nd century, after all these things took place, so that the writer could look back and write them as though they were prophecy. Some say it was written by a pseudo-Daniel. Not the actual Daniel of history, but, but a different Daniel, taking on the name of Daniel to promote this book. Not true. Make no mistake. Daniel is prophetic. And this prophetic book teaches us how to live with faith for tomorrow. See, that's the beauty of prophecy. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure. Note that. We don't just have the word, we have the prophetic word. More sure. 
to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. How can Peter say that? Because prophecy isn't guesswork. Prophecy is God-spoken. Prophecy is God-breathed, God-inspired. It's not throwing out an idea and seeing if it comes true and then patting yourself on the back when it does. It is actual truth that the Lord has revealed. And in Daniel, we come to truly the last of the four great major prophets, as they're called. All the prophets are majors as far as I'm concerned. But they call these the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Isaiah was the prophet, you may recall, who speaks of the salvation of the Lord. The Messianic prophet. Jeremiah, we studied, speaks of the judgment of the Lord. Just finished Ezekiel, who spoke of the glory of the Lord. If you didn't have a chance to listen through the last eight chapters or nine chapters that we studied together, it's the culmination of the whole book of Ezekiel. You need to go there. But he talks about the glory and the coming glory of the Lord. Well, Daniel, among all these, reveals the kingdom of the Lord. So we go from salvation and judgment to glory and kingdom in these four major prophets. Now understand about the prophecies of Daniel that they're twofold. Two aspects to the prophecies of Daniel. They are, first of all, fulfilled, and secondly, future. Both are contained in this book. We're going to see over 500 years of prophecies fulfilled. Things that Daniel spoke and then history bore out, proved to be true. Daniel talks about four world empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Covering all these with intricate and interesting pictures and portrayals. Daniel talks about the first coming of the Messiah. He talks about the death of the Messiah. He covers all these things, and all these things have come to pass and have been fulfilled just as Daniel prophesied they would be. We're also going to see prophecies yet future. Some that have been fulfilled, some that have yet to be fulfilled. Daniel refers to, talks about a revived Roman Empire of sorts. Daniel talks about the coming tribulation. Daniel reveals the rise and the fall of the one we call Antichrist. Daniel talks about even Armageddon. All these things are included in this amazing book of prophecy. And Daniel talks to, talks about the coming kingdom of Jesus. But understanding all these things about the prophecies of Daniel and that it is a prophetic book, there's something that God does here that you've got to understand first that precedes the prophecy. The Lord sets the prophecies of Daniel in the last six chapters of the book. The first six chapters of the book are not prophetic, they're history. They're about what happened to Daniel, the decisions he made, the life that he lived, the things that he faced and his friends faced. And I'm going to say something, and this is going to be a mark of brilliance. You're going to be stunned and surprised, (laughs) perhaps a bit overwhelmed, and you may need to process this for a few minutes. You've got to go through the first six chapters to get to the second six chapters. Thank you very much. Yeah. You gotta go through the first part of the book to get to the second part of the book. What does that really mean? It means integrity before insight. It means moral clarity before clairvoyance. 
It means the person of Daniel living out faith as an example before the prophecies of Daniel drawing us in to the amazing things of God. And that's the way it is in our lives. That's the way I believe the Lord wants to work with us. Before we get to the fantastic visions, we realize a real faith worked out in a real life. For Daniel, the revelations come after the obedience. You know, we see the same pattern in the book of Revelation. We see in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus reveals Himself in all His glory to John. But what happens in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? They're letters to the churches. Jesus talks to the churches. He talks about their faithfulness. He talks about their endurance. He says, hang in there. He talks about the church age, really, the last 2,000 years. And all of His words of encouragement and challenge and even warning come to a church that He says, I want you to obey Me. Walk in obedience. That comes first. Guess what comes next? Visions of the future. In chapter 4, John is caught up into heaven. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 6 through 19 talks about the tribulation. Chapter 20, the millennial kingdom. Chapter 21 and 22 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. There it is. We've just covered the book of Revelation. You can put that one away now. (laughs) But just like in Daniel, we start with the practical in the revelation and then we go to the revelatory. And in your life, in my life, a lot of times people will become believers and early on they, they want the clairvoyance. They want the insight. They want to hear the Lord. They want all these amazing things. And God's saying, I want you to walk in faith. I want you to learn how to trust me without the bells and whistles. problem is when the bells and whistles come early or when we, we think they come early or we're trained to expect them early on, sometimes we're just not ready to handle them. Stuff of prophecy is not easy going, gang. Stuff of prophecy and discernment, sometimes it's very hard. We prayed over a brother in our shepherds meeting this last week. I'm not going to say who. Okay, it was Brian. We prayed. (laughs) Brian was just dealing with some stuff. Not personal, ministry stuff. And it was heavy on his heart. And the word that came to to my mind when we were praying was just heart sick. It was just a long day. And we prayed about that, and I realized when I went home, man, Brian, you're in a good company. It's in the company of men like Daniel. Because the reality is when the revelations of God come, sometimes along with it comes a heaviness, the burden of the truth. Ignorance truly is bliss. And so the Lord says, I want you first to know obedience. I want you to first live practically with me, and then the prophecy will come, and then my voice will come, and then you'll learn to really hear me. And to discern the things that I have for you. But let's start with obedience. That's why the title behind me, Yesterday's Tomorrow for Today. Because yesterday, Daniel prophesied about tomorrow, but the impact is on us right now. It is on us today. Not only is the book of Daniel prophetical or prophetic, but secondly, the book of Daniel is practical. And what I love about this book, and especially through the first half, it reveals to us how to live by faith in a pagan world. Timely, isn't it? More and more we are living in a pagan world. More and more the pursuit of even the American dream is a pagan pursuit and not a biblical one, not a Christian one, not a Jesus-honoring one. The book of Daniel is practical. Of course, all Scripture is practical. All Scripture teaches us how to live by faith in a pagan world. Psalm 19, verse 7 tells us, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Note this, enlightening the eyes. There's obedience before revelation. The commandment before the enlightenment. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God. That doesn't mean just one book or one verse or the thing that tends to tickle your ears in the moment. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Peter comes along and he says his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has given us his word. God has given us his spirit. And in those two, everything we need. All you need to know how to live by faith in this world. But you're not going to know how to live by faith practically in a pagan world if you're not in the word. You're going to get stuck. You're going to find yourself tripping and falling and confused and overwhelmed by things. And if you're not calling upon the Spirit of the Lord for wisdom, you're not going to understand how to live in this world. Daniel is a man of the Word. And we see this played out in a most powerful way later in the book. He is a man of the Word. And he and his friends are outstanding representatives of how to maintain integrity and conviction of faith in a world very much like our own. Now, we may not be in captivity right now. We may not be overrun. We may not be exiles. Not yet. Wait, Rick, not yet. What do you mean? You think that day could come? Sure. Absolutely. Well, before the church is raptured? Yeah, it could. We could find ourselves in a very different situation. America could bottom out like that, and we could be under the authority and the influence of another country, another nation. And even the authority and the influence of our nation is waffling, is it not? And so we are called to live practically, to live by faith, not hoping in our country, but hoping in the Lord. That our trust and our assurance is in the one true God. Both prophecy and practicality are necessary. And God gives us both in the book of Daniel. To live practically, we need some idea of where we're going prophetically. Those who would deny prophecy deny themselves something that is incredibly important for practical living. You see, where there's no future hope, we have despair. There's nothing that you know is coming, nothing that you can rest assured in, then when life gets difficult, you begin to despair, to become depressed. Hope deferred, Proverbs 13, 12, makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And you recall from Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Ever wonder why God pours out so much future prophecy for Israel? Here's a people, the most maligned in all history, and God says, I want you to know what's coming. Why, Lord? So you can hope even in the midst of hard times. So to live practically, we need to know where we're going prophetically. And to live prophetically, we need to have some idea of how the future impacts us practically, again, for today. 
Because I think a lack of application creates doubt. I'm talking about now those who who would spend their time just in, in the realm of biblical prophecy with no immediate application, never thinking about how does that affect us right now. What happens in those situations is faith gets replaced by guesswork. And faith becomes more an esoteric thing, a vague, mysterious thing. Those who, who like to talk about the mysteries. Ooh, the mysteries. And everything becomes dark and difficult to understand. And, and ooh, the mystery. But ultimately in all that mystery, where's the truth? You've got to find it. Faith becomes, I think for a lot of people, dubious. People walk into churches and, and they hear mysterious talk, but they don't just hear the plain true Word of God. And in not hearing that, they go, I don't know if I can buy this. I don't know if I can accept what, what it is that you're telling me. That, that sounds a little esoteric. Remember Harold Camping? Some of you remember this guy, Harold Camping, just, just recently had proclaimed, I think it was 2011, was it? I'm pretty sure. Uh, proclaimed that the rapture was coming. It didn't come. And then he proclaimed yet again, three months later, oh, I, my calculations were off. It's coming in October. And it didn't come. And right after that, Harold Camping had a stroke. And just after the stroke, when he came back out of this, I read recently that Harold Camping admits that he was wrong and has declared no more date setting. <laughs> and I think that's wise. It's wise. We've talked about some compelling things in this barn, compelling prophecies, compelling indications around us, but understand we are not about setting dates. We are about looking for the coming of Jesus whenever He will come. And so we're not about these, these esoteric things. We're into what does this mean? How does prophecy apply practically for today? Daniel gives both a future hope and an immediate app. And you can put that on your iPhones. An immediate application, and we see this in the book of Daniel. Thirdly, note this, the book of Daniel is proven. It's proven. I said earlier, we know this is a book of prophecy. Absolutely, this is a legitimate book of prophecy. How do we know that this book was written in the 6th century B.C.? How do we know it was written by Daniel? And not after the fact by pseudo-Dan. How can we be so sure? A couple of things. And you can do more research into this, and there's a lot that's very interesting when you start to dig. Heard of the Babylon Chronicles? The Babylon Chronicles are clay tablets dated back to about 750 to 280 B.C. And these clay tablets now are housed at the British Museum and they refer to an official title in the Babylonian government, a title of one of Nebuchadnezzar's own officials. The title is the Rab Saris. The Rab Saris. It means the master of the eunuchs. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel. The chief of his officials in the Hebrew is the master of the eunuchs. So we see in, in the Bible this mention of this master of the eunuchs, which prior to the discovery of the Babylon Chronicles was an interesting title. Oh, come on. Master of the eunuchs, what's that all about? I mean, that's just something that, you know, pseudo-Daniel pulled out of his brain to throw back into history because he knew we'd never find out if there was really a title like that. No, there is, and the Babylon Chronicles have proven it. 
And you can see those in the British Museum should you decide to travel over there and check it out. We also have something else very interesting about the book of Daniel, proving the dating of Daniel. Fragments of Daniel were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were those scrolls that were rolled up and put in clay jars and and hidden throughout caves in Qumran there in Israel. Discovered in 1947, one year before Israel became a nation. I find that interesting. And the Dead Sea Scrolls had all of these parchments. Many of them had degraded over the years. We have an almost complete copy we talked about of the book of Isaiah. But there are fragments of the book of Daniel. And what's interesting in those fragments is the language between chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 7, verse 28. The language is Chaldean. Now, if you study Daniel, you know this, that the book of Daniel begins in Hebrew all the way up through the third verse of the second chapter. And then beginning in the 29th verse, or actually the first verse of the 8th chapter, and on, it's back to Hebrew again. But those chapters, the beginning of 2 through the end of chapter 7, is all written in the Chaldean language. And what's interesting in these fragments is it's ancient Chaldean that matches documents of Babylonian language in the 7th century. Discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know more about Daniel, personally, and the book. And his book is referred to more in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament prophet. We have all kinds of information, archaeologically, historically, and biblically, about Daniel, the prophet. You might still say, well, I don't think that still proves that some pseudo-Daniel didn't write this. Jesus' people listen. The single litmus test of the legitimacy of any Bible prophet or prophetic passage is this. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about it? What did Jesus say about the prophet? What did Jesus say about the prophecy itself? Did He verify it? Let me give you an example of this. Take the bizarre account of Jonah. What a weird story. It's a great story. VeggieTales did an excellent representation of it. The Sunday school story, the kids who went to Sunday school growing up, they heard the story, Jonah and the big fish that swallowed him alive, you know, and he lived for three days in the bed. Well, it happened with Geppetto. It had to happen with, you know, Joseph, or with with, uh, uh, Jonah. Surely Jesus didn't subscribe to such a whale of a tale. Surely he did, and please stop calling him Shirley. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. In the words of Jesus, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And in one fell swoop, Jesus not only refers to the prophet Jonah and legitimizes him, but legitimizes the prophecies of Jonah. He goes on and says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus verifies Jonah. And I've talked to Christians who don't believe the book of Jonah is is literal, that it's just a parable. Jesus verified both the man and the story. So your argument is no longer with me, your argument is with Jesus Christ. And it's an argument you will lose. Jesus verifies Besides, what's more fantastic? For a man to be swallowed by a fish and come back three days later? Or for a man to be swallowed by death and come back three days later? 
Well, the one swallowed by death verified the one swallowed by the whale. What about Daniel? Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation. We're going to talk about that in a later study. What that is, what that means. But Jesus said to His people, when you see that, that abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, verifying that Daniel was the prophet he claimed to be, verifying that the words spoken by Daniel, written in the 6th century, is legitimate. He said, when you see that happen, you need to respond. By the way, note this, that in Matthew 24, 16, there's a little aside that's added in there. A lot of your Bibles, if you have the red letter edition of a Bible showing Jesus' words, puts this in black letters, indicating maybe it wasn't Jesus' words. I think it very well could have been. Jesus knowing that people would be reading this, reading about the abomination of desolation, and He says, when you see this taking place, let the reader understand. What do you mean, Lord? It means I want you to take the book of Daniel uh, carefully. I want you to study it. I want you to study to show yourself approved. See, God doesn't want us just to have the easy way, the wide highway. God doesn't want to just say, all right, boom, here's all the revelation you need, and we'll bring you on home in a bit. He says, I want you to study your way through my prophecies. Because only by studying our way through it, only by seeking to understand, will we be prepared to truly hear the Lord when He speaks speaks at other times. Study my Word. Know my Word. And Jesus, Jesus not only verified Daniel, but He's the final word on Daniel. And the book of Daniel points us to Jesus. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 13, just for a moment. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel writes... I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Jesus quoted that and got himself in all kinds of trouble. Because he declared, that's me. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now some people see this and they go, okay, I accept that that's Jesus, but look, he comes up to the Ancient of Days, and this kingdom was given to him, and this glory was given to him. Therefore, God the Father has to be greater than Jesus, because God gave it to Jesus, and therefore greater than Jesus, right? There's only one problem with that. God says, I don't share my glory with anybody. So if glory was given to this Son of Man from the Lord God, the glory from God had to be given to God, because only God has this glory. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 7. But Matthew Henry said this, he said, in Daniel, we always find encouragement to faith and hope. Examples worthy of imitation and something to direct our thoughts to Christ Jesus upon the cross and on His glorious throne. Sir Isaac Newton also said, to reject Daniel, both the book and the prophet, is to reject the Christian faith. 
Well, as we open up to chapter 1, there's your introduction. Now for the sermon. I'm going to give you four points to follow through. We're just going to quickly do these and and finish out the chapter and and be ready then on Wednesday night to uh, head into chapter 2. By the way, let me give you this note, little heads up. The best way to get the most out of this study through Daniel is going to be to come Sunday and Wednesday. And I've said that before, but truly with this book, because I'm doing a chapter on Sunday, a chapter on Wednesday, a chapter on Sunday, a chapter on Wednesday. That's how it's going to go. So if you don't come Wednesday night, you don't have to, and you can always listen in online, but understand that you're going to be kind of skipping around a bit on Sunday mornings, and it's just the way I've laid it out. Why have you done it that way? Because I'm a jerk, and that's just how it works. (laughs) Chapter 1. You're all invited to be here. It's eight weeks. It's going to take us eight weeks to go through this entire book of prophecy, just one chapter at a time. And I invite you to be here for the whole thing. This is a book you need to get under under your, uh, your wings here. Okay, so four points to follow through quickly here. Conquest, corruption, commitment, and command. Make it easy for you. Conquest, corruption, commitment, and number four, command. The enemy's conquest, number one. Look at verse one again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar is another name for Babylon or Chaldea. To the house of his God. Note this, the word God there is the plural Elohim, which means to the house of his gods. When applied to God, Elohim, It's speaking of the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's why it's in the plural. Any other time in Scripture when the word is used, it's speaking of gods with a little g, generically, but also plural. Nebuchadnezzar brought the things from the articles of the temple, brought all that stuff into the house of his gods. His multiplicity of gods, Babylon being the greatest idolatrous nation in all of history. Babylon's early history can be studied out, we're not going to do it this morning, but can be studied out in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. That's where we first hear of Babylon. We first see and some of the background of how it got founded. Noah, after the flood. Noah had given birth to his son Ham, so he was on the ark with him, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. After the flood, Ham becomes cursed. That in itself is a nefarious story. Ham then has a son named Cush. Cush has a son named Nimrod, and Nimrod founded Babel. Babel meaning the gate of God. In his determination, this is going to be a gateway to the gods, because Nimrod himself was the first great pagan. God changed the name from Babel to Babel, meaning confusion in the Hebrew. And Babylon itself would be the first seat of mass rebellion. Now, there's rebellion on planet Earth before that. There's rebellion in individual lives throughout the planet, all the way up to the flood. But Babylon would be the first place where mankind amassed for the purpose of rebelling against God. Babylon is also the birthplace of paganism. Where paganism, by the time Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity, was absolutely rampant. And the mysterious pagan belief system that grew up out of Babylon, gang, it is still practiced today. There are still believers in the Babylonian mystery religion. In fact, it has infiltrated all kinds of cults and false religion on planet Earth in ways that would shock you. Babylonian paganism. 
We will see its final demise at the end of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 17 verse 4 describes it as a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet color decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. John writes... And upon her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. If you read Revelation 17, you might say, why is Babylon referred to or represented by a woman? Perhaps because the mysterious Babylonian religion was founded by Nimrod's wife, a woman by the name of, we believe, Semiramis. And Semiramis was the high priestess of idolatry. And her story is a fascinating one as well. Ironside, in his lectures on the book of Revelation, said Babylon became the fountainhead of idolatry and the mother of every heathen and pagan system in the world. It all came from here. It all started in Babylon. Babylon today is located in the outskirts of the modern city of Hela in Iraq. And in some ways, Babylon is to Satan what Jerusalem is to God. You could call Babylon Satan's capital on planet Earth. And I, for one, believe, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe ancient Babylon is going to rise in the time of the tribulation. I believe that will be the location of Antichrist's throne. Because Babylon, Satan uses and works through, similar to God with Jerusalem, the big difference is the future end is not good for Babylon. The future for Jerusalem is fantastic. But Babylon, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19 says, Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation 18, if you want to study this, details the demise of Babylon. Daniel will detail that as well as we get further into the book. So Daniel was deported to Babylon in 605 B.C. And again, Jerusalem was destroyed 20 years later. During this time of of Daniel's early prophetic ministry, Jeremiah was in Judah. Ezekiel was exiled in Babylon. Daniel served in the high courts of Babylon. And it's interesting that God used all three of these prophets at the same time in three locations to get his message out to his people. Daniel's there in the courts of Babylon. Verse 3 says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. Now see, that frightened me because as a kid I thought, well, that's me. (laughs) Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them daily ration, the daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now you need to get this. Understand how he works. Who? The enemy. For after the enemy's conquest came, number two, the enemy's corruption. If you were a despotic ruler, how would you go about subjugating or corrupting a nation? What would you do? How would you achieve your goal? I mean, you could just put everybody into slavery. I guess that's one way to do it. But a better way is if you can retrain the thinking of the nation you've conquered. If you can take them and make them like you, then you went all the way around because now your kingdom grows. Now you've got more loyal subjects. 
And that is truly the way a great dictator would think. Nebuchadnezzar was the first great world dictator. There were other great nations, Assyria before it, Egypt before that, great nations on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was the first one to subjugate the entire known world. He was the first truly world dictator over all nations. And he was a brilliant man and a despot. And we see here great insight into the way our enemy, that despotic despotic devil, works himself. Here's how he corrupts. He starts by changing the innocent. Note back there in verse 4, young men. Get them while they're young. I want the young ones because they're trainable. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't waste any time on those who are set in their ways. In the same way, our enemy loves to go after young hearts. Moms and dads, we've got to be aware of this. He likes to get them young. And we think, oh, we got time, you know. We've got time to get them into church. We've got time to, to introduce them to Jesus. We'll do that when they're a little older, when they understand a little more. And the enemy says, right on. Because I can work on them now. He gets them while they're young. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We need to get the word into our young people. The number one thing I tell Jake with our youth ministry, so teenagers, you can blame me for this. I tell Jake, I want them in the word. You teach them the word. Plenty of time for entertainment and fun and goofing around out in the world. They can get that anywhere. You teach them the Word. You make sure what's happening here on Tuesday nights and on Wednesday nights with our high school and junior high ministry is Bible study. Get them into the Word of God. They need it now. And they may not even understand that. Man, as a kid, I remember the trinkets that we used to compete for in Sunday school. Some of you remember those things. There was the coolest little uh, glow-in-the-dark cross. I had that for years. I kept it by my bedstand at night and I'd turn my light on and put the little cross there and then turn the light off and watch it glow. <laughs> These were in the days before video games. <laughs> That's what we did. We just watched things glow. <laughs> and there were all kinds of things. We'd go in the Bible bookstore and there were always the little, the little shelves that had the little plastic Bibles and the little toys and things. And our Sunday school teachers would say, learn a verse, get a trinket. So I was both you know, learning the Bible and capitalism all at the same time. It was great. <laughs> I didn't know at the time, but God's Word was getting in. And I have found myself in my life recalling verses, and I know when I first memorized them. It was back there in Sunday school when I was bored out of my mind. I'm like, why didn't that teacher do something fun like bring M&Ms? You know, or let's do something other than this. But it gets in. And the more it gets in, we have no idea when the word implanted will spring up right when it's needed. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, every one of us, let's get them while they're young before the enemy gets them while they're young. Change the innocent. Change the information. Notice this. I thought it was interesting. He ordered them to teach them the literature there at the end of verse 4. The literature of the Babylonians. Why? Because it was packed with paganism. The stories of Babylon. The astrology, in the, even in the mathematics and the sciences of Babylon. The magic and the idolatry. It was all part of the literary system of Babylon. And it said that a nation is defined and redefined by its stories, by its literature. Who are the storytellers of our nation? Where's the literature of our nation today? I'm not talking about the classic 
literature that we have to endure, you know, in classes in school growing up. I'm talking about the the teachers of today, America's storytellers like Robert Kirkman. How many of you know Robert Kirkman or have heard the name? None of you? How many of you have heard the heard of the show The Walking Dead? Okay. The Walking <laughs> Yes. The Walking Dead gang. Robert Kirkman is the creator writer of the graphic novel series that became a smash cable hit, the biggest cable show ever in cable television, The Walking Dead, about zombies. The premiere this last Sunday night outpaced Sunday night football with a record-breaking 16.1 million viewers in the fourth season of The Walking Dead. Now, please understand, I'm no zombie bigot. No, I'm not intolerant of brain eaters. They have a place, you know. They're just trying to get ahead. Everybody else. Some are just trying to get a leg up. I mean, whatever it takes, right? Some of you guys are going to skim me for this stuff. Seriously, what does zombie fascination say about our culture? It's interesting to me. I'm not not talking, I'm not judging here the the show itself, because I've watched it, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying here is what does it say about our our, our mentality? What is it about zombie apocalypse? Because it's not just The Walking Dead, World War Z, other zombie movies, zombie books, zombie literature. It's all zombie, zombie, zombie right now. You know, the whole vampire thing is so passe. <laughs> what does that say about the, the way we're thinking and, and about that whole apocalyptic mood? See, that's the thing I'm interested in. Typically, by the time we were talking about this before we started worship this morning, by the time, every time there's a change of a, of a, of a millennium, you get into a new thousand years crossing over, there's always kind of a, an apocalyptic further, fervor in about the last decade of an old millennium. We, we know that sociologically. But usually by about ten years into the new millennium, the apocalyptic view goes away and people now are filled with hope and, and, and all of the literature and the sociological impact at, at that time tends to be forward-looking and promising rather than dark and negative. We're getting darker. We're getting more negative. We're getting more apocalyptic. Now some of you might say, okay, but I don't watch that kind of stuff. How many of you watched the show Once Upon a Time? Once Upon a Time. It is uh, Disney actually produces the show, but what it does is it takes Disney princesses and characters and drops them into this small town environment where they don't realize who they were before. They kind of get drawn into this place and suddenly they, they don't know and, and the, the mayor of the town is actually a witch from Disney lore, you know? And so they're all in there trying to figure themselves out. I, I've seen that show too. Interesting show. This season, for the first time, the character Mulan is bisexual. First Disney princess to be a bisexual character on a show. What are our storytellers telling us? How is this influencing our nation? These types of things, gang, are typical of our national stories. And I was thinking through this this last week. You know what came to mind? An old hymn. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. What a story. So, first thing to do there is change their information. Then change their idiom. 
Go after the innocent, change their information, change their idiom. That is, teach them the language of the Chaldeans. Teach them to babble like us. (laughs) Teach them to talk like the world. And it's more than just what comes out of our mouth. Our language has a dramatic impact on how we think and evaluate life. Nebuchadnezzar was not just after them being able to speak a second language. He wanted Babylonian to be the primary language of these young men as he drew them in, retraining them in the literature of the Babylonians and now the language of the Babylonians. Why? To make good Jewish boys into bad Babylonians. (laughs) That's the idea. Change the whole way they think. What is the new idiom in our country today? Texting. Well, texting is just American language. No, it's not. Texting is a whole new language that our kids are growing up learning. And parents, I'm just asking you, do you know what all the phrases mean? Have you taken time to see what it is that your kids are texting and what the the little catchphrases are? Things like OMFG or LMFAO? And if you don't know what those are, I'm not going to tell you. You need to look it up. You need to know. Why? This is the language of the culture of our young people right now. And they text these things off without even thinking about it, and yet the language is affecting the way they think. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Grab the innocent. Get them while they're young. Change the information. Change the idiomatic language because these things of our culture saturate our minds and our bodies and eventually draw down the spirit. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing with these boys. And I have found, you know, it's not just our young people. I have to keep coming back to Jesus over and over and over again. We talked about this also this past week. i got to keep coming back. Because if I don't, I start to get dull. If I don't come back to Jesus, I start to lose faith. I start to get worldly in my thinking and in my understanding if I don't keep taking it back to the Lord over and over. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Many of you are familiar with that verse. Gang, ask, seek, and knock are all Greek verbs in the present active imperative. Now doesn't that freak you out? What does that mean? It means literally translated, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You don't stop. You don't just get to a point where I've done all the asking, seeking, and knocking I need to. I've got it all down. I'm fine. When you get to that point, you're in the most dangerous place you've been in your Christian walk. Keep asking. You keep going back to the Lord. Keep seeking. You keep looking for Him. Keep knocking. You keep begging. You keep imploring. You keep coming before the Lord. I want to think like you think. I want a wisdom that comes down from above. I want knowledge that is godly, not worldly. Because I am in a constant barrage of worldly knowledge coming at me all the time. I want godly knowledge. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. By the way, Matthew 7.7 is not a verse of evangelism. It is a verse for Jesus' people. It is a verse Jesus speaks to believers about how to keep your faith. Change their intake. That's the last thing that we see happen here. Verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's food 
from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service, change their intake. What's the big deal with that? It's just a different kind of food, right? The dietary change here is the most radical of any of the changes so far. Because this is a radical change from the kosher diet of Daniel and his friends to a Babylonian pagan diet. Now, I mentioned before that we see Nebuchadnezzar going after the young and the immature. Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. Can you say honestly before the Lord that you are maturing in your faith? That you're more mature now than you were a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago? Are you on an incline of maturity in your faith in Jesus Christ? And a sure sign of where your maturity is at is your daily diet. Take a look at what is on your table. What are you taking in? What are you feeding on? The Hebrew writer, I think it was Paul, wrote with frustration in Hebrews chapter 5. You can hear it coming out of the words. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You know what that implies to us? Paul would say to you and to me today, if you're not able to teach the Word, then you don't know the Word. Well, don't ask me to teach Sunday school. (laughs) That's for those who are trained. Aren't we all supposed to be trained? Paul doesn't look at the church and say, there are some teachers and then there's the rest are all students. He says, no, you should all be teachers. You should all know God's Word so well that you are turning around and teaching others, whether it's two or three people in a small group discipleship, or leading a small group, or teaching in Sunday school, or teaching some kind of a class, or talking to people about Jesus. We ought to be teachers. He says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the Word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Spiritual maturity is not static. It is dynamic. I mean, try living off milk for two weeks. See how you feel. Or try just no food at all. There's another option. And you'll just get weaker until you can't discern Babylonian from Judean. That's the whole idea. Change the diet. Affect the way they think. The prophet Hosea chapter 14 verse 9 said, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. The transgressors will stumble in them. So finally, after changing the innocent by changing their information and their idiom and their intake, the enemy says, change their identity. I said the last one was the last one. Well, this is the last one. (laughs) Change their identity. Verse 6 says, Among them were the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Change their name. Change their identity. And that's the whole idea. This was so effective, by the way, that we still call three of these four Jewish young men by their Babylonian names. It's gotten to where that kind of bugs me. People talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm like, that's not their names. It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are the names I want to call them by because those are their godly names. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Belteshazzar, the name they gave him, 
is may Bel protect his life. No longer God being your judge, but Bel being your Lord protector. Hananiah's name means Jehovah is gracious. His name gets changed to Shadrach. Command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of the Babylonians. I think Gazuntite was the sun god. <laughs> Mishael, his name is who is like God. Some of you are going to get that tomorrow morning, by the way. Mishael means who is like God. Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, his name, the Lord helps. Abednego means servant of Nebo, the pagan son of Baal. So all of their names went from godly Hebrew names to pagan names to change the identity. The names were changed, in this case, to destroy the innocent. I shared on Wednesday night that the rabbis of the 3rd century had this phrase. They said three were called after the name of God, the righteous, the Messiah, and Jerusalem. The Messiah I get being called after God's name. Jerusalem, I even understand that. The righteous get to be called after the name of God. Like those in Antioch who were first called Christians. And it wasn't meant to be a, a nice statement. It was little Christ. Oh, you're little Christ. It was meant as a slur. We have owned it as a badge of honor. The righteous are called after the name of God. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Because the name is about the identity. Who do you identify with? Who are you called after? Are you called after the name of Christ? Such that it affects even the way you think about yourself. Jesus said in Matthew 22.14, Many are called, few are chosen. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were called and chosen. And they chose their chosenness. Number three, we'll move quickly here. I know we're, we're running a little long. The believer's commitment. The believer's commitment from conquest to corruption. Now we see the believer's commitment. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not deny him, defile himself. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king who has appointed your food and your drink, why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths of your own age? And then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials has appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given veggies and water to drink, and then let our appearance be observed in your presence, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. I love that about Daniel. He says, put us to the test. Challenge our faith. Bring it on. We're going to live the way God wants us to live. Test us and see if it's not better. Is your faith that solid? Do you have that kind of confidence? Ask me anything you want to know. Test the Word of God. Bring it on. Daniel does. So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for ten days, and at the end of ten days their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter. That that is healthier than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. (laughs) See, we would read that a little differently today. We'd be like, okay, dude, you gotta you gotta get back out to the track. But no, they were they were healthy. 
So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and their wine that they were to drink and kept giving them the vegetables. The Babylonian identity was humiliating. Their idioms were weird. The information was foreign. But the intake, the dietary intake, this was in direct opposition to God's law. And Daniel knew it. Well, you can call me by a different name. You can shove different literature in front of me, make me speak a different language and all that. I will not change my intake. I will not change my diet. This was Daniel's attitude. But think about where Daniel came from. If you plot his life out historically, he was raised by parents who were alive in the great revival of Josiah. The last revival of Judah, where the temple was restored, where where the sacrifices reinstated, the Sabbath and the Pesach, the, the Passover, all this came back into play. And it was a wonderful time, the last glorious time for Judah under King Josiah. Daniel's parents grew up in that. Daniel was raised by parents who knew about the revival of God, who knew what it meant to to follow God's law. And yet Daniel himself would now grow up in the palm of paganism. Daniel held high offices in both the Babylonian and Persian empires, outlasting numerous kings and rulers. And yet, even for all this Babylonian influence on Daniel's life, He is put in the Bible in the same category as Moses and Solomon in terms of Hebrew wisdom. One of the most wise of the Old Testament Scriptures. He was compared by God to Noah and Job in terms of righteousness. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 14 and 20. Noah, Job, and Daniel were the three men of righteousness that God named. Amazing. You might say, well, so what? So Daniel understood something that we've got to understand, and that is how to live in a pagan culture. If you live in a pagan culture, it demands a radical obedience on your part. A radical obedience to the ways of God. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I'll show you the key right here to Daniel being able to to withstand the influence of Babylon. It's verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. He made up his mind. In the Hebrew, literally, he set upon his heart that he would not defile himself. At the level of the Spirit, his truest self, Daniel said, I will not be defiled. In Daniel's life, the Spirit influenced the mind which then influenced the behavior, the body. He made up his mind. He set upon his heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Daniel was pure in heart. Where the conquest, the corruption of Babylon sought to undermine Daniel's commitment, his faithfulness was rooted in something far greater. Number four, the Lord's command. Daniel knew the commands of God. By the age of 15, 16, 17 years old, Daniel knew the commandments. He knew what mattered. He knew what obedience had meant. He had been trained well by his parents at a very early age so that this young man could not be altered even in a pagan world. The Lord's command. Rather than be subjugated to Babylon, Daniel submitted himself to the commands of God. And I remind you, Psalm 19.8, the commandments of the Lord are pure. Enlightening the eyes. 
No wonder Daniel was a seer. No wonder he was a man who saw tomorrow. A man of great vision. Because his eyes had been enlightened by entrusting himself to the commandments of God. Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. At the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter, note that, by the way, they entered the king's personal service. They are in the courts, the high courts of Babylon. You know what? That's okay. It's okay to work in the pagan world. It's okay to be involved in the secular environment as an agent of Jesus Christ. So wherever you work, as long as the work is not directly, diametrically opposed to the things of God, wherever you work, praise the Lord, live for the Lord, stand for Jesus. That's why why Daniel was set there. You know, we can say, well, Jeremiah is the pure prophet. He stayed back with the people of Judah. Or Ezekiel, no, he's a pure prophet. He at least was there suffering among the exiles. Daniel was a pure prophet in the courts of Babylon, serving the Lord and the Lord's purposes over that whole entire kingdom in remarkable ways that we will see. So he entered the king's personal service, verse 20, as for the matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Which reminds me of a verse, Romans 8, 20, uh, 31, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? The key to successfully navigating a pagan culture is personal submission to the commandments of God. And His commandments are not burdensome, Jesus says. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. So my question to you this morning is, do you love Him? Do you love Him in deed as well as in word? Daniel's world fell apart when he was a teenager. He never went home. He would never go back to Judah, never see Jerusalem again. Probably never saw his family again. And his faith was often put to the test. You know his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would go into the fiery furnace. Daniel himself, as an old man, probably 85, 86 years old, went into the lion's den. His life would be marked with challenges. What he saw prophetically, as I said earlier, often made his heart sick. We see in one situation where he is laid out on his couch for three weeks because of the prophecy that he's been given. He doesn't know what to do with it. It just wears him out. But across 85 years, there's one thing that sustained Daniel. And it's something I believe that sustains a follower of Jesus more than any other thing. And it wasn't Daniel's love for God. It's what Joshua said earlier. It was God's love for Daniel. It's the love of God. Not your love for Him, but His love for you. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, the angel Gabriel, who we get to meet in this book, Gabriel came and told Daniel, You are highly esteemed. 
Daniel chapter 10, verses 11 and verse 19. O man of high esteem. And that Hebrew phrase, or that word high esteem is hamad. And hamad means you are greatly desired. Daniel, you are a delight to the Lord. He has a passion for you. We talk a lot about us having a passion for God. Guess what? He has a passion for you. He has a love for you that surpasses all other love. And you might say, well, I I wish it were that way. I wish God looked at me the way He looked at Daniel. I'd love for God to say that I am held in high esteem. And so I ask you the question, well, then what does it take? What does it take to be Hamad? To be greatly desired by God? To be a delight to God the Father. Listen, if Daniel was greatly desired by God, how much more was Jesus highly esteemed? Right? I mean, does anyone have any qualms about that one? That Jesus was the beloved of God? His most beloved? His only beloved Son? And so if Jesus was so beloved, don't miss this, Paul says in Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. And if Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and Jesus Christ is in you, guess what that makes you? Beloved. You're beloved. You are highly esteemed. You are the beloved of God and that is what sees us through more than any other thing. It always rattles my chains when when a a believer comes up to me and says, yeah, I I, I love God and all that, but there's there's just no way He can love me. Well, then there's no way you're going to make it if you can't believe that God loves you because His Word declares He does. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, it doesn't take an old prophet. It just takes a rebirth. Daniel was a teenager when his life changed forever. And that's what God does. He forever changes lives. And so we begin the book of Daniel. Let's bow and pray. Father, praise Your name. We bless Your name this morning. We thank You for the words of the book of Daniel. We thank You for the time this morning, Father, to dive in. There's so much more here, and I pray that You will give us a heart of study over the next several weeks. Father, I pray that You will put that uh, reminder that would go off in our hearts every week. Get us back here, Lord. Father, I would love if every person in this fellowship were able to walk through the entire teaching together. I pray that You make that possible and remind us, Father, whether it's here on Wednesday night or listening online, but Lord, I pray Your entire word of this amazing prophetic book would get in our hearts over the next eight weeks. Or Lord, come and take us home. That would be fine too. But we bless Your name and we praise Your name. We love You, Lord. And we this morning accept Your love for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.